Ezekiel chapter 16. Ezekiel chapter 16. We're going to look at verses 1 through 14 and then go back and break it down. And then we'll continue on. We're going to hopefully try to get through almost all of chapter 16 tonight so that we stay in line with the group on Tuesday night as well. Ezekiel 16, starting in verse 1, says, Again, the word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, make known to Jerusalem her abominations, and say, Thus says the Lord God to Jerusalem, Your origin and your birth are of the land of the Canaanites. Your father was an Amorite, and your mother a Hittite. And as for your birth, on the day you were born, your cord was not cut, nor were you washed with water to cleanse you, nor rubbed with salt, nor wrapped in swaddling cloths. No, I pitied you to do any of these things to you out of compassion for you. But you were cast out on the open field, for you were abhorred on the day that you were born. And when I passed by you and saw you wallowing in your blood, I said to you in your blood, live. I said to you in your blood, live. I made you flourish like a plant of the field, and you grew up and became tall and arrived at full adornment. Your breasts were formed and your hair had grown, yet you were naked and bare. When I passed by you again and saw you, behold, you were at the age for love, and I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your nakedness. I made my vow to you and entered into a covenant with you, declares the Lord God, and you became mine." Then I bathed you with water and washed off your blood from you and anointed you with oil. I clothed you also with embroidered cloth and shod you with fine leather. I wrapped you in fine linen and covered you with silk. And I adorned you with ornaments and put bracelets on your wrists and a chain on your neck. And I put a ring on your nose and earrings in your ears and a beautiful crown on your head. Thus you were adorned with gold and silver and your clothing was of fine linen and silk and embroidered cloth. You ate fine flour and honey and oil. You grew exceedingly beautiful and advanced to royalty. And your renown went forth from among the nations because of your beauty. For it was perfect through the splendor that I had bestowed on you, declares the Lord God. Now chapter 16 is a long chapter in which God tells Israel her whole history from God's perspective. Uh, how God saw her from the time she was born until the time that was happening at that time that Ezekiel was prophesying to them while they were in exile in Babylon. Now, as I told you before we started our recording, this chapter is graphic and descriptive and quite embarrassing to the Jews, so much so that many past rabbis would not even read this chapter aloud in public. So what we're going to do is we're going to just take a look at what we've read so far, because I want you to see each section that I'm breaking it down into is actually referring to a period of the nation of Israel's history. Look again at verse 3. It says in verse 3, And say, Thus says the Lord God to Jerusalem, Your origin and your birth are of the land of the Canaanites. Your father was an Amorite and your mother a Hittite. Sounds like something kids would say to each other on the playground, doesn't it? Your father was an Amorite, your mother's a Hittite. But actually, what God was pointing out to them was, if you know Abraham, he came from Mesopotamia, and God called him into, into Canaan, and they became a nation there. But they came out of that area of Canaan. That's where they were, and he called them. When they were in that area, he called them out to himself. Or, not yet called to himself, but at least gave them birth. They were given birth at that time. Now, if you go over to verses 4 and 5, though, take a look at verses 4 and 5. It says, and when I, sorry, and, and as for your birth, on the day you were born, your cord was not cut, nor were you washed with water to cleanse you, nor rubbed with salt, nor wrapped in swaddling cloths. No, I pitied you to do any of these things to you out of compassion for you, but you were cast out on the open field, for you were abhorred on the day that you were born. 
Now, when Israel began as a nation or as a new nation, no one wanted them there and they were treated poorly. If you remember their history, even though they were wanderers and strangers in the land of Canaan, they were treated badly wherever they went. And this picture here, he says, look, when you were born, nobody cut your cord. Nobody rubbed you with salt. Nobody took care of you because those are all things that you do to someone that you nurture and you care for. And just yesterday, actually, I got a phone call from my aunt. You all don't say aunt down here, but I have to call her aunt because she's up in New England and she doesn't want to be called aunt. But she called me because she lives in Massachusetts and I'll be preaching up there in a couple of weeks. And she was talking with me about the schedule and all that. And then I told her that I was going to be flying home from there on my birthday, when, uh, which is the 26th of March. I'll be flying back from there to come home. And she goes, I saw you on the day you were born. I've known you ever since you were born, she says to me. She goes, actually, I saw you have your first bath, which, of course, makes us all feel really good. But uh, I said, that means you're old, Aunt Faith, because I'll be 52 on that birthday. And she said, yeah, I'm getting old. But why did, when a baby's born, they're nurtured and they're taken care of and they're washed and they're, the cord is cut and the umbilical cord is tied and they, 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 they treat it well. God says to you, to the nation of Israel, when you were born, nobody treated you good. Nobody treated you good. Remember, the Bible says they wandered in the land of Canaan for a while. Now, look at verses 6 and 7, because as we go to verses 6 and 7, you're going to see these verses describe Israel's growth as a nation under Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It also covered the 430 years in Egypt as they grew and matured, but still because of being slaved, they were not a clear culture and a civilization yet. And so when we see in verses 6 and 7, and when I passed by you and I saw you wallowing in your blood... I said to you, in your blood, live. And then God says it again. I said to you, in your blood, live. I made you flourish like a plant of the field. And you grew up and became tall and arrived at full adornment. Your breasts were formed and your hair had grown, yet you were naked and bare. Like I said, this is covering the time period now of not only their wandering in the land of Canaan, but also then when they went into Egypt. And they began to grow and they became a pretty powerful group of people but he hadn't taken them to himself yet. That's going to happen at the end of the time in slavery in Egypt. They're alive. He made them alive. He made them grow. But they still were not a nation yet, per se, in the way that other nations would perceive them. Um, go to Exodus chapter 1, and I'll show you what I'm talking about. Go to Exodus chapter 1, verses 1 through 14. <clears throat> says, these are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt, and then Joseph died, and all his brothers, and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly, then multiplied and grew exceedingly strong, so the land was filled with them. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they and they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, 
the more they multiplied and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. So God describes the nation of Israel at this time period, and like I say, when they're in slavery in Egypt, as the fact that they were growing and becoming mature. And he said, I'm the one that made you live. Your mother was a Hittite. Your dad was an Amorite. But I, I'm the one, when you became, became a people, I'm the one that said live. And I'm the one that empowered you in order to grow. But you weren't considered by the nations around you real well. And you weren't treated real well. But when we get to eight, verses 8 through 14, go back to Ezekiel 16. And verses 8 through 14. Look at what he says to them next. It says, but when I passed by you again and saw you, behold, you are at the age for love. And I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your nakedness. Now, let me just stop real quick. Some of you might remember the story of Ruth and Boaz. Remember how Naomi tells Ruth to go and sit at the feet, sleep at the feet of Boaz and ask him to put his garment, cover her, her with his garment. It was a picture of marriage and taking her to be his and that's what God says. He goes, when I came then again, I then took you as mine. I took you as my bride. I covered you with the corner of my garment. And I covered your nakedness. And I made my vow to you. And I entered into a covenant with you, declares the Lord God. And you became mine. Then I bathed you with water and washed off your blood from you and anointed you with oil. I clothed you also with embroidered cloth and shod you with fine leather. I wrapped you in fine linen and covered you with silk. And I adorned you with ornaments and put bracelets on your wrists and a chain on your neck. And I put a ring in your nose and earrings in your ears and a beautiful crown on your head. Thus you were adorned with gold and silver and your clothing was of fine linen and silk and embroidered cloth. You ate fine flour and honey and oil. You grew exceedingly beautiful and advanced to royalty. And your renown went forth among the nations because of your beauty. For it was perfect through the splendor that I had bestowed on you, declares the Lord. See, this, these verses now cover the period of time when God led them out of Egypt, made his covenants with them in the wilderness and in the land. During that time, blessed them with much gold, silver, honey, and oil. He even blessed them with royalty, as we just saw. And many nations became aware of their God-given glory. This is time, during the time of the reign of David and Solomon. If you know anything about Israel's history, they were such an amazing culture and civilization at that time that the Queen of Sheba and others from around the globe would come to just see what was happening in Israel. It was an amazing amazing time. We also see that God says, not only did I make you mine and take you to be, be mine and marry you as your husband, I also gave you gifts. And I don't know if many of you have ever caught this, but if you remember the story of Abraham sending his servant to go find a bride for Isaac, and as he goes to find this bride, when he finds her and she agrees to be married to Isaac, what does the servant do? The servant gives her gifts. It's a wonderful picture of salvation and how the Father sends the Holy Spirit out, that's the servant, to go purchase a bride for his son. And when we say yes to the offer to be married to Jesus, the Bible says he gives us gifts. It's such a cool, cool picture, and we've seen it all through the scriptures here. 
And so God has been saying to them, I've, I, I'm, I'm, your mother was a, an Amorite and your father was a Hittite and, and, and I, I know where you came from and, and nobody took care of you when you became a people, as you became a nation and you started off. No one treated you well, but I saw you laying there in your blood, still covered in your blood, and I said live and you grew, but you still weren't considered a people until it was time and you were at the age of love and I called you to my myself miraculously called you to myself out of those so many years of slavery and I brought you out into the wilderness and I entered into covenants with you and I brought you into the land that I had promised you and you were mine and you were beautiful and you became royalty they went from slaves to royalty they went from nobody to slaves to royalty but look at verse 15 and see what happens God then says, but you trusted in your beauty and you played the whore because of your renown and lavished your whorings on any passerby. Your beauty became his. You took some of your garments and made for your, uh, sorry, took some of your garments and made for yourself colorful shrines and on them played the whore like there has never been nor ever shall be. You also took your beautiful jewels of my gold and my silver, which I had given you, and you made for yourself images of men, and with them played the whore. And you took your embroidered garments to cover them and set my oil and my incense before them, and also my bread that I gave you. I fed you with fine flour and oil and honey, and you set before them for a pleasing aroma. And so it was declares the Lord God. And you took your sons and your daughters whom you had borne to me and these whom you sacrificed to them to be devoured. Were your whorings so small a matter that you slaughtered my children and delivered them up as an offering by fire to them? And in all your abominations and your whorings, you did not remember the days of your youth when you were naked and bare, wallowing in your blood. And after all your wickedness, woe, woe to you, declares the Lord God. You built yourself a vaulted chamber. And made yourself a lofty place in every square. That's the high places we've been talking about. At the head of every street, you built your lofty place and made your beauty an abomination, offering yourself to any passerby and multiplying your whoring. You also played the whore with the Egyptians, your lustful neighbors, multiplying your whoring to provoke me to anger. Behold, there. For I stretched out my hand against you and diminished your allotted portion and delivered you to the greed of your enemies, the daughters of the Philistines who were ashamed of your lewd behavior. You played the whore also with the Assyrians because you were not satisfied. Yes, you played the whore with them and still you were not satisfied. You multiplied your whoring also with the trading land of Chaldea and even with this you were not satisfied." Instead of being a faithful bride to the God who took them from nothing and made them royalty, they, like spoiled rich kids, acted as if they had done this all themselves and lived however they wanted, even though God had warned them that this would be a temptation. I'm going to show you way, way back. He warned them that this was going to be where they were going to be tempted and they weren't to do it. So go back with me to Deuteronomy chapter 8, and we're going to read all the way verses 1 through 20. But I want you to see God had already laid it all out. And as I share this with you, I want you to be reminded and all of us to be reminded that there are things that God warns us as his children as well to flee youthful lusts and to watch out for these things, to obey his commandments, to listen to what he's saying. And just as the nation of Israel ignored, we have to be careful that we don't do the same. But I ask you a question in a little bit tonight that makes the, uh, start looking at what makes the difference between them and us. 
And there's a wonderful answer to that question, but just start listen to the warnings. In Deuteronomy chapter 8, look at verses 1 through 20. God speaking to the nation of Israel as they're about to go into the promised land through Moses. He said, the whole commandment that I command you today, you shall be careful to do, that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land that the Lord swore to give your fathers. And you shall remember the whole way the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you and he let you hunger and he fed you with manna, which you didn't know, nor did your fathers know that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Your clothing did not wear out on you and your foot did not swell these 40 years. Know then in your heart that as a man disciplines his son, the Lord your God disciplines you. So you shall keep the commandments of the Lord your God by walking in his ways and by fearing him. For the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land, a land of brooks and of water, of fountains and springs flowing out in the valleys and the hills, a land of wheat and barley, of vines and fig trees and of pomegranates, a land of olive trees and honey, a land in which you will eat bread without scarcity, in which you will lack nothing." A land whose stones are iron and out of whose hills you can dig copper and you shall eat and be full and you shall bless the Lord your God for the good land that he has given you. Take care lest you forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and his rules and his statutes which I command you today. Lest when you have eaten and are full and have built good houses and live in them and when your herds and your flocks multiply and your silver and your gold is multiplied and all that you have is multiplied then your heart be lifted up and you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery, who led you through the great and terrifying wilderness with its fiery serpents and scorpions and thirsty ground where there was no water, who brought you water out of the flinty rock, who fed you in the wilderness with manna that your fathers did not know, that he might humble you and test you to do you good in the end. Beware, lest you say in your heart, my power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the power to get wealth, that he may confirm his covenant that he swore to your fathers as it is to this day. And if you forget the Lord your God and go after other gods and serve them and worship them, I solemnly warn you today that you shall surely perish. Like the nations that the Lord makes to perish before you, so shall you perish because you would not obey the voice of the Lord your God." Now, all the way through so far in Ezekiel, we have been hearing God describe Israel's idolatry and worship of other gods and turning to other nations for their provision instead of to the God that made them alive, that took them as they were a nobody and brought them out of Egypt and brought them into the land and took them as his. How does God describe Israel's worship of other gods and turning to other nations? Prostitution. You're going to see in just a little bit, they weren't even good prostitutes. But he sees it as whoring, as the scripture says. He sees it as prostitution, as unfaithfulness. He says, I did this for you. I did this so you would come to know me. I made you alive. I'm the one that made you beautiful. I'm the one that made you impressive to the world. And then you became proud in your beauty. And you kind of thought it was all about you. But then you started going after all these other gods that aren't gods. You took the gold and the silver that I had given you as a gift from me, and you made idols out of it and played the whore with them. You took the oil and the incense that I had given you, and you burned it 
before these other gods, played the prostitute with them. You even took the children, and I don't know how many of you caught this, that were born for me. Did you catch that? You took the children that were born unto me. That's something we have to be reminded of, parents. Our kids are not ours. They have been given us by God for a time to teach and to train and to mold. But hopefully, if you were involved in church at any time when your kids were little, you had a service where you stood up on the stage and you dedicated that child to the Lord. And you said, Lord, this child was given to us by you and this child is for you. How many times I've often thought as a pastor, it would be necessary to not just do it when our kids are babies, but maybe in the teenage years be reminded and have another time where the parents stand up and say, these kids, Lord, belong to you. Or when they're adults even, be reminded they were given, they were created by him for him. Just like you were created by him for him, so were your kids. But he said, you took those kids that were given for me, born for me, and you offered them to these other gods. Had them put to death. I could go on. I just want to take a second. Just take a little bit right now and just let God speak to you tonight. Go back in your mind. Allow the Spirit of God to speak to you about your story. Some of you that like to write, you might find this to be a really fun or not so fun, but very helpful experience. Go get alone with the Lord and get a piece of paper and a pen and let him tell you your story from his point of view. For me, it might sound something like, Jim, I knew you back when you were born in Quincy, Massachusetts. I knew you before your aunt saw you have your first bath. Called her an aunt. We'll see if she's listening. I brought you to myself in 1973 in a little gymnasium in Milton, New Hampshire. I was the one who walked you through those teenage years when you were bullied, when you were ridiculed because of your poverty. I saw you try to get your friends' approval through sports. I saw you try to get the rest of your friends' approval through getting the right kind of haircut or saving your money up to get a kind of clothing that might match theirs since you've been living with hand-me-downs. And I was the one who walked you through all those years. I was the one who moved you from there down to Florida. I was the one that called you into the ministry. I was the one who equipped you for that. I'm the one that blessed you with your wife. I could go on and on and on. Be a powerful thing to allow God to show us from his point of view all that he's done. Some of you might not have gotten saved until later in life, but he might, just like he did with the nation of Israel, start before that time and say, I'm the one that kept you alive. You remember that day when you almost fell through the roof or when you were almost hit by that car? And I was the one that kept you alive when you should have died. But I was preparing you for a relationship with me. And let God show you what he's been doing in your life. Don't miss this. In Deuteronomy chapter 8, we saw God say to them as he was bringing them into the land, I'm the one who led you all these years. 
intentionally in the wilderness. I did it to humble you, remind you of your dependence on me. I did it to test you, to see what was in your heart. The test wasn't for me to find out. I already know everything you're going to do. But it was to show you where you are. And I did it to teach you that man lives by every word that comes from me. I want you to walk with me. And you know, we've unfortunately in the church, in many ways, gotten away from walking with God. We've turned Christianity into a set of rules and regulations and bylaws and constitutions and church manuals. And this is how it's always to be done. And we, as I heard one preacher say, God says we're brothers. We're not supposed to be twins. But we try to make everybody act like us and and look like us. And God says, no, no, no. I want you to walk with me. All along, it's been my desire that you come to me for everything. I brought, you think about this, scholars and and historians have uh, done the math and they've done the research and they believe that the number of Jews that came out of Egypt into the wilderness was a million. God led a million people into the wilderness where there was no water and no food. What was he trying to do? Actually, before we even get to that, he brings them straight to the the Red Sea, which is a dead end. And he knew the Egyptians would be bearing right down on him. Why did he do that? To show them, turn to me. Always turn to me. I'm your provision. I'm the one that said live. I'll say it again. I'm the one that told you live. We see him say it twice, don't we? And I put you in that situation. And then I did something amazing that you'll never forget. Where I had you just walk across on dry ground. And that same water that was on each side of you drowned all your enemies. But then I brought you into the wilderness where there was no water and no food, what was he trying to teach them? Dependence and to rely on him for everything. Man lives by every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord. Walking with him. We see in the New Testament when Jesus takes his 12 apostles and he sends them out to go preach, but he says, oh, hang on a second, guys, before you go out, let me get you dressed for the, for the event. You can't bring any change of clothes. You can't bring any food, no water, and no money. What's he trying to teach them? Dependence. Rely on him. I'm just going to say this because I think God wants me to say it. How many of you here that are in this room or are listening online depend on MasterCard instead of the master? Well, you just don't know my situation, Jim. I, if I didn't have a credit card, I wouldn't be able to pay. Oh, you, you don't know God. I'm not saying you're not saved. You don't know the power of God. See, it's easy for us to look at Israel and say, man, look at all that he did and all that they just ignored. We have that same tendency. So I'm going to ask you a question. What's different then between us in the nation of Israel. There's something different. There is something different. We have the same flesh. We have the same temptations to walk away, to turn away from God. We remember the old hymn, prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. Anybody else prone to wander? I am. Prone to leave the God I love. What's the difference between them and us? 
the Holy Spirit indwelling us. The promised covenant, which we're not going to get to tonight. There won't be time, but please don't miss next week. We're going to take a look at the end of chapter 16. God, at the end of this, gives an amazing promise about a future covenant. They broke the old covenant, but he's going to make a covenant with them that is just going to take care of everything. By the way, that covenant has been given to us already right now through Jesus Christ. And he says in that covenant that he promised for Israel, but is ours now. I'm going to erase all your sin. I'm going to put my spirit within you and cause you to obey my decrees. Remember that song I just quoted to you? Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. The next line is, here's my heart, Lord. Take and seal it. Thank God. The difference between them and us is in the flesh, there's none. We'd all do the same thing. There's no one righteous, not one. There's no one who seeks God. We're all just like they are. But the difference, and this is important for where we're going tonight, the difference is he who began the good work in us will finish it. Did you catch it? He's the author and the perfecter of our faith. The only reason we are slightly different from the Israelites is because, and it's a wrong word to say slightly, because it diminishes the role of the Holy Spirit and the power of the Holy Spirit. But the difference between us and the Jews is the fact that we have been given his spirit, which seals us and finishes what he's doing. But we have those same tendencies. Go to Jeremiah 31. Verses 31 and 32. Just back up two books. You're in Ezekiel, then you'll hit Lamentations. And back up to Jeremiah chapter 31. Look at verses 31 and 32. This is what has been given to us in the church, but is still yet future for Israel. Verse 31, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their what? I was their husband, declares the Lord. Now we'll get into whatever that covenant is next time we study, so you don't have to read any further. I just want you to see, though, he says... They broke that covenant, though I was their husband. And that's why he sees whenever they turned away as whoring, prostitution, because they, she was unfaithful. Nation of Israel was unfaithful. Oh, by the way, do you know in the book of James, chapter 4, the scripture says that whenever we are friends with the world, it's enmity toward God. We cause the spirit that lives within us to be jealous. You ever heard the scripture teaching and talk about don't grieve the Holy Spirit? Don't quench the Holy Spirit. Thank God we're sealed by the Spirit. Thank God He'll never leave us nor forsake us. But when we continue to turn to other things instead of Him, when we seek man's counsel instead of God's counsel, when we seek man's ways of getting things done, folks, I got a text yesterday. Because I have a Christian ministry, I get all these things. I got a text yesterday from some ministry that is said, this is literally what they said in my text. We want to help you with your ministry, because we know that money is more important than mission. Isn't that crazy? It's the world's way of doing things. You'd be amazed how many pastors today get letters and contacts saying, we can double your attendance in just one year. We can, we can help you fundraise Folks, let me just challenge you to let the Spirit of God show you whether or not you're really dependent on Him or whether or not you're doing things how you think it needs to be done or looking to man in any way. He sees it as unfaithfulness. 
he wants to provide. But Jim, I'm in a real bad situation. Yeah, guess who put you there? Guess who led you into the wilderness? Guess who's the one that's kept making it so that you didn't ever get there because he's trying to teach you something. Because many of us, if we ever got there, what would we do? Thanks, God. We got it. Thanks, good. He doesn't want that. Go look at verses uh, 26 through 29 again. Chapter 16 of Ezekiel. Twenty-six through twenty-nine, chapter sixteen. You also played the whore with the Egyptians, your lustful neighbors, multiplying your whoring to provoke me to anger. Behold, therefore, I stretched out my hand against you and diminished your allotted portion and delivered you to the greed of your enemies, the daughters of the Philistines, who were ashamed of your lewd behavior. You played the whore also with the Assyrians because you were not satisfied. Yes, you played the whore with them, and still you were not satisfied. You multiplied your whoring also with the trading land of Chaldea, and even with this you were not satisfied. He says, you kept looking to the other nations like Egypt and Assyria for help when I was here all along. I want to show you a couple examples of this from the Old Testament. It's one thing to say it. I want you to see it because it's kind of eye-opening. And here's what I'm going to have you do. I'm going to read to you two passages of Scripture, actually three, but two main stories that we're going to look at. And there's going to be two kings, one king named Asa and another king named Hezekiah. I want you to be watching the reaction of Asa and Hezekiah to what happens in their, their, these stories we take a look at. Go to 2 Chronicles chapter 16. 2 Chronicles chapter 16, look at verses 1 through 10. It says, In the 36th year of the reign of Asa, Basha, the king of Israel, went up against Judah and built Ramah. So I'm going to make sure you're still with me here. Asa is the king of the southern kingdom of, of, of the nation of Israel, which we know as the nation of Judah, all right? And the people of Judah. Asa is the king of the southern kingdom. Basha is the king of the northern kingdom. So the king of the northern kingdom takes an army to come fight against their own people. Jew against Jew. The northern kingdom, Basha, comes in to fight against Judah with Asa in the southern kingdom. And they built this area called Ramah, that he might permit no one to go out or come in to Asa, king of Judah. Kind of like laying siege on the city. Then Asa took silver and gold from the treasures of the house of the Lord and the king's house, and he sent them to Ben-Hadad, the king of Syria, who lived in Damascus, saying, There is a covenant between me and you, as there was between my father and your father. Behold, I am sending you to you silver and gold. Go break your covenant with Basha, the king of Israel, that he might with, may withdraw from me. And Ben-Hadad listened to King Asa and sent the commanders of his armies against the cities of Israel. And they conquered Ejon, Dan, Abel-Maim, and all the store cities of Naphtali. And when Basha heard of it, he stopped building Ramah and let his work cease. Then the king Asa took all Judah, and they carried away the stones of Ramah and its timber with which Basha had been building. And with them he built Geba and Mizpah. Now before we go any further, let's make sure we're all together here still. The northern king, kingdom of Israel comes against southern kingdom of Judah. Asa says to the Assyrian king, Ben-Hadad, hey, would you help out? Uh, we're going to give you silver and gold. By the way, where'd they get that silver and gold? From God. And so it took it from the temple. And they gave it to the king of Assyria saying, would you break your treaty with the northern kingdom and go attack them so they'll stop attacking us? Ben-Hadad 
sends his army to do that, and they start attacking the northern kingdom. Basha, the king of the northern kingdom, starts finding out about it, and he stops, and he goes back to defend what he's been losing up in the northern kingdom. And while they're doing that, all the people of Judah go out and gather up all the stones and the timbers, and there's so much stuff that they're able to gather, they build two cities. Sounds like it worked, didn't it? I mean, come on. Contacted the king of Assyria, and it took care of itself. And not only that, they were able to take all this free lumber and stones and build two cities. Go to verse 7, though. At that time, Hanani, the seer, came to Asa, the king of Judah, and said to him, Because you relied on the king of Syria and did not rely on the Lord your God, the army of the king of Syria has escaped you. In other words, you'll never defeat them. Were not the Ethiopians and the Libyans a huge army with very many chariots and horsemen? Yet because you relied on the Lord, he gave them into your hand. Now we've got to stop and we've got to go back and take a look at that story. It's just two chapters back. He reminds him and he says, weren't the, the armies of, of, of uh, the Ethiopians and Libyans a huge army? And you turned to the Lord and he protected you. Go back to check 2 Chronicles 14. Let's look at verses 9 through 15. And look at how Asa responded in this one. In 2 Chronicles 14, starting in verse 9, it says, Zerah, the Ethiopian, came out against them with an army of a million men and 300 chariots and came as far as Mereshah. And Asa went out to meet him, and they drew up their lines of battle in the valley of Zephathah at Mereshah. And Asa cried to the Lord, his God, and he says, O Lord, there's none like you to help between the mighty and the weak. Help us, O Lord, our God, for we rely on you. And in your name we have come against this multitude, O Lord, you are our God. Let not man prevail against you. So the Lord defeated the Ethiopians before Asa and before Judah, and the Ethiopians fled. Asa and the people who were with him pursued them as far as Gerar, and the Ethiopians fell until none remained alive. That's a million people, folks. Until none remained alive, for they were broken before the Lord and his army. The men of Judah carried away very much spoil, and they attacked all the cities around Gerar, for the fear of the Lord was upon them. And they plundered all the cities, for there was much plunder in them. And they struck down the tents of those who had livestock and carried away sheep in abundance and camels, and then they returned to Jerusalem. So prior to this, an army of a million people comes against them. They turn to the Lord and say, Lord, help! And God blessed. Yet now... When their brothers come down from the northern kingdom, they don't turn to the Lord now. They send money. They didn't have to give money to God. They just had to ask him. But they give money to the king of, of, of Assyria. And Hanani the seer says, at that other time you relied on the Lord. But now you didn't. Look at verse 9. For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to give strong support to those whose heart is blameless toward him. You've done foolishly in this, and from now on you will have wars. Then Asa was angry with the seer and put him in the stocks in prison, for he was in a rage with him. Because of this, and Asa inflicted cruelties upon some of the people at the same time. What was Asa's response to the prophet coming and saying, you turned to man instead of God, and God's not pleased with that. What was the reaction? He actually had the prophet put into prison and started treating people badly. 
Folks, I don't know how much of you know, how many of you actually know what the, the full aspect of the ministry God's called me to is as Just a Preacher Ministries. But one of the main thrusts is I go around this country, speak into American churches and Christian leadership and ministry, seek challenging them to become a people who fully, totally trust in the Lord. Go back to the book so we know who he is and how to know what he's speaking and listen to his leadership and be led of the Spirit. And at the same time, I challenge them to stop using man's methods to get things done and to seek the Lord and to do what he says. And let me tell you, I've run into some aces over the years. I've actually had churches fire pastors for bringing me in. For real. The church today doesn't want to hear this. You know why? Because man's methods, you can produce results. Just like they were able to get all that stuff from Rama and it looked like it worked. There are churches today that are becoming huge and powerful with totally using man's methods and merchandising and marketing and scheming. And the Lord's not in it. And one day we're going to find out that most of what we've tried to do for the Lord in our own strength God will say, I never did any of that. Let me show you another story real quick. Go to 2 Kings chapter 20. Look at verses 12 through 19. 2 Kings 20 verse 12, at that time Merodach, Baladan, the son of Baladan, the king of Babylon, sent envoys with letters and a present to Hezekiah, for he had heard that Hezekiah had been sick. And Hezekiah welcomed them, and he showed them all his treasure house, the silver, the gold, the spices, the precious oil in his armory, all that was found in his storehouses. There was nothing in his house or in all his realm that Hezekiah did not show to them. By the way, the reason Hezekiah is showing him everything is he's proud. Look at what I've got. Look at what we've got. It's not a look at what God blessed us with at all. All right. So then it goes on and says in verse uh, 14, Then Isaiah the prophet came to King Hezekiah and said to him, What did these men say? And from where did they come to you? And Hezekiah said, They have come from a far country, from Babylon. He said, What have they seen in your house? And Hezekiah answered, They have seen all that's in my house. There's nothing in my storehouses that I didn't show them. Then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, Hear the word of the Lord. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and that which your fathers have stored up till this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord, and some of your own sons who shall be born to you shall be taken away, and they shall be eunuchs or castrated in the palace of the king of Babylon. Then Hezekiah said to Isaiah, the word of the Lord that you have spoken is good. For he thought, why not if there'll be peace and security in my days? Isn't that amazing? He's just been told that everything that God had blessed them with was going to be carried off and taken away by the people of Babylon and not only that, some of the sons that you're going to still give birth to that are going to be yours, they're going to be taken away as captives and they're going to be castrated and they're going to serve as eunuchs for the king of Babylon. And he goes, doesn't affect me. Let me just say this to you. Be careful because we have those same tendencies. And one of the things I've seen over the years in churches is people who are more concerned with how it affects them than whether or not how it affects anybody else. We've got to be careful because as we get older, that's a tendency for all of us as well. More, more interested in how it affects us, what we like, what we don't like. Be careful. Let God show you what not relying on him will start to look like. Your heart becomes hard and you don't even realize it. I'm going to ask you again, who do you look to 
Go back to chapter 16. Look at verses 30 through 43. Chapter 16 of Ezekiel, verses 30 through 43. How sick is your heart, declares the Lord God, because you did all these things, the deeds of a brazen prostitute, building your vaulted chamber at the head of every street and making your lofty place in every square. Yet you are not like a prostitute because you scorned payment. Adulterous wife who receives strangers instead of her husband. Men give gifts to all prostitutes, but you gave your gifts to all your lovers bribing them to come to you from every side with your whoring, so you were different from other women in your whorings. No one solicited you, solicited you to play the whore, and you gave payment while no payment was given to you. Therefore, you were different. Therefore, O prostitute, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, because your lust was poured out and your nakedness uncovered in your whorings with your lovers and with all your abominable idols, and because of the blood of your children that you gave to them, therefore, behold, I will gather all your lovers with whom you took pleasure, all those you loved and all those you hated. I will gather them against you from every side and will uncover your nakedness to them that they may see all your nakedness. And I will judge you as women who commit adultery and shed blood are judged." And bring upon you the blood of wrath and jealousy, and I will give you into their hands, and they shall throw down your vaulted chamber and break down your lofty places. They shall strip you of your clothes and take your beautiful jewels and leave you naked and bare. They shall bring up a crowd against you, and they shall stone you and cut you to pieces with their swords, and they shall burn your houses and execute judgments upon you in the sight of many women. I will make you stop playing the whore, and you shall also give payment no more." So I will satisfy my wrath on you, and my jealousy shall depart from you. I'll be calm and will no more be angry, because you have not remembered the days of your youth, but have enraged me with all these things. Therefore, behold, I've returned your deeds upon your head, declares the Lord God. Have you not committed lewdness in addition to all your abominations? Now, prostitution is not approved of by God, but he makes an interesting statement here in verses 30 through uh, uh, 34, he says, prostitutes that are good at it, at least get paid. You were a bad prostitute in the fact that you prostituted yourself, but you paid them to do it. And so what I want to do is I want to take you back to Genesis chapter 38 to a story that kind of encapsulates this whole deal. If we understand chapter 38 and what all goes on there, it'll help us put all together everything I just read to you in these verses. Now, let me just tell you, you're not going to be impressed with a man named Judah if you've never read Genesis 38. Look at verses 1 through 26. Genesis 38, verses 1 through 26. This is not the, the nation of Judah. This is actually the person, the, the man named Judah that the nation of Judah came from. It says, it happened at that time that Judah went down from his brothers and turned aside to a certain Adulamite whose name was Hira. There Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite woman whose name was Shua. He took her and went into her, and she conceived and bore a son. Before we go any further, were the Jews allowed to go marry the Canaanites? No, God was trying to keep a nation for himself. And so he went into her, and she conceived a son and bore a son and called his name Ur. Sounds like he had a little trouble coming up with a name. What are you going to name him? Er. All right. That sounds good. We'll name him that. She conceived again and bore a son, and he, she called his name Onan. Yet again she bore a son, and she called his name Shelah. Judah was in Chazib when she bore him. 
And Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. Then Judah said to Onan, Go in to your brother's wife and perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her and raise up offspring for your brother. Now before we go any further, let me just remind you, in Deuteronomy chapter 25 in the Law of Moses, God had said that they were to, if a brother died and hadn't produced any offspring, a brother, near relative, was to then take the wife and produce a child through her, which would be in the brother's name. And the whole purpose was, as you hopefully understand, and we'll get to later on in our study of Ezekiel down the road, God is preserving by his grace, a people of Israel from each tribe so that they will get their inheritance down the road. And so it's very important that they keep the name alive and the family alive because there is a future blessing. So we see now in verse 7, sorry, verse 8, Then Judah said to Onan, Go into your brother's wife and perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her and raise up offspring for your brother. But Onan knew that the offspring would not be his. So whenever he went into his brother's wife, he would waste the semen on the ground so as not to give offspring to his brother. And what he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and he put him to death also. Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, Remain a widow in your father's house till Shelah, my son, grows up, for he feared that he would die like his brothers. So Tamar went and remained in her father's house. Judah thinking the reason that these guys are dying is because of Tamar. So in the course of time, the wife of Judah, Shua's daughter, died. When Judah was comforted, he went up to Timnah to his sheep shearers, and he and his friends Hira the Adullamite, and, sorry, and he and his friend Hira the Adullamite. And when Tamar was told, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep, she took off her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil, wrapping herself up, and she sat at the entrance to Anaim, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that Shelah was grown up, and that she had not been given to him in marriage. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face, so he turned to her at the roadside and said, Come, let me come in to you. For he didn't know that she was his daughter-in-law. She said, What will you give me that you may come in to me? In other words, as a prostitute, what's my payment? He answered, I'll send you a young goat from the flock. And she said, If you give me a pledge until you send it. He said, What pledge shall I give you? She replied, Your signet and your cord and your staff that's in your hand. So he gave them to her and went into her, and she conceived by him. Then she arose and went away, and taking off her veil, she put on the garments of her widowhood. When Judah sent the young goat by his friend the Adulamite to take back the pledge from the woman's hand, he didn't find her. And he asked the men of the place, where is the cult prostitute who was at a name at the roadside? And they said, no cult prostitute has been here. She returned to Judah and said, I have not found... So he returned to Judah and said, I have not found her. Also the men of the place said, no cult prostitute has been here. And Judah replied, let her keep the things as her own or will be laughed at. You see, I sent these young goat and you didn't find her. In other words, I tried, didn't work. About three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law has been immoral. Moreover, she's pregnant by immorality. And Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned, because that's how you were to treat unfaithful women. As she was being brought out, she sent word to her father-in-law, by, by, by the man to whom these belong, I'm pregnant. And she said, please identify whose these are, the signet and the cord and the staff. Then Judah identified them and said, she's more righteous than I, since I didn't give, her, give my son to her, my son, Sheila, and he did not know her again. Amazing story, isn't it? It's kind of makes you really impressed with Judah, doesn't it? Yet at the same time, in this story, we see what God's talking about. Prostitutes at least get a payment. 
Israel, you prostituted yourself to all these people and let them come into you and take all your stuff and you paid them. Oh, and by the way, what was the treatment for an immoral woman? According to the law, they were to be stoned. Was God wrong in doing what he does to Israel because of her unfaithfulness? No. But oh, he was patient. Oh, was he patient? It finally came to a point where God said, your sin has reached its full measure. I don't know how many of you have caught this yet throughout all this. Way back in Genesis chapter 15, God tells Abram, you're going to be a mighty nation and you're going to, your, your descendants are going to go into slavery. But then after 400 years, they're going to come out of slavery. I'm going to bring them into the land that I promised. But the sin of the Amorites hasn't reached its full measure yet. In other words, there comes a point where the sin of the Amorites reached its full measure. And when that happens, I'm going to take you out of that land and I'm going to bring your descendants into the land of Canaan and use you as a tool of judgment against all those nations. Why did God have them wipe out, kill them all, men, women, and children? Because the sin had reached its full measure and it was time for judgment. God is patient, merciful. He's not wanting anyone to perish. He's been given opportunity to all people through creation, through many different ways to reveal to them their need of a Savior and their need of Him to take care of their sins and in the same way, the nation of Israel had been wicked all throughout their whole history. But there came a point where God said, it's time. It's time. You do hopefully understand that for Christians, you don't lose your salvation. But for believers who walk in continual disobedience, there does come a point where God says, I'm not going to let this go on anymore. And he takes Christians home early too. There is a sin unto death, the Bible says. Don't lose your salvation, but... You have to deal with it. Go to Jeremiah chapter 2. We've got six more minutes. I think we can get caught up to where we were last night, so we stay together. Jeremiah chapter 2. Listen to the heart of God. Jeremiah chapter 2. We're going to look at verses 1 through 13. The word of the Lord came to me, saying, Go and proclaim in the hearing of Jerusalem. Thus says the Lord. I remember the devotion of your youth, your love as a bride, how you followed me in the wilderness in a land not sown. Israel was holy to the Lord, the first fruits of his harvest, and all who ate of it incurred guilt. Disaster came upon them, declares the Lord. Hear the word of the Lord, O house of, of Jacob, and the clans of the house of Israel, thus says the Lord. What wrong did your fathers find in me that they went far from me and went after worthlessness and became worthless? They didn't say anymore, where's the Lord who brought us up from the land of Egypt, who led us in the wilderness, in a land of desert and pits, in a land of drought and deep darkness, in a land that none passes through where no man dwells. And I brought you into a plentiful land to enjoy its fruits and its good things. But when you came in, you defiled my land and made my heritage an abomination. Not only that, the priest stopped asking, where's the Lord? And those who handled the law didn't even know me. The shepherds transgressed against me and the prophets prophesied by Baal and they went after things that don't profit. Therefore, I still contend with you, declares the Lord, and with your children's children, I will contend. For cross the coast of Cyprus and see, or send to Keter and examine with care. See if there's been such a thing. Has a nation changed its gods, even though they are no gods? But my people have changed their glory for that which does not profit. Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Might be shocked and utterly desolate, declares the Lord. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and have hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Folks, I don't know how many times we have to keep seeing this over and over and over throughout Scripture. God says, 
I want you to follow me. That's all. Just walk with me. Now, how are we going to know whether or not he's speaking to us? First John chapter 4 says we're to test the spirits to see whether or not they're from God. How are we to know? We need to know the word of God. Otherwise, we won't know who's speaking. I just heard yesterday a man showed me that there's a famous pastor, nationwide known pastor, who has just said that we need to stop using the Bible if we're going to be relevant to the world today. As he worded it, as soon as we stop using a 2,000-year-old document, we can be more relevant to the people. Folks, we're living, we're living in a day in which people have turned away from the Word of God. And you need to know what the Word of God says. But yet, at the same time, you need to be people who are walking with God all the way through God has said in Isaiah chapter 50, verses 10 and 11, he says, if you're in the dark and you don't know what to do, trust in the Lord and rely on your God. But for all of you that come up with your own flashlight, and your own torches, here's what you'll receive from me. You'll lie down in torment. What were their two mistakes? He said, I remember when as a young bride, you followed me in the wilderness. And you said, where's the Lord? And you just, I led you. But you stopped asking, where is the Lord? Your preachers even stopped asking, where is the Lord? I'm going to ask you a quick question, those of you who have been in church for any length of time. How many of you have ever heard in a business meeting in one of our churches, what does God want? But we unfortunately hear most of the time what we want. I want to challenge you. We'll read quickly verses six, uh, chapter 16, verses 44 through 52, and that'll get us caught up with the Tuesday night crowd. Chapter 16, verses 44 through 52. Behold, everyone who uses Proverbs will use this proverb about you, like mother, like daughter. You are the daughter of your mother who loathed their husband and her children, and you're the sister of your sisters who loathed their husbands and their children. Your mother was a Hittite and your father an Amorite, and your elder sister is Samaria who lived with her daughters to the north of you, and your younger sister who lived to the south of you is Sodom with her daughters. Not only did you walk in their ways and do according to their abominations, within a very little time you were more corrupt than, than they in all your ways." As I live, declares the Lord God, your sister Sodom and her daughters have not done as you and your daughters have done. Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had pride, excess of food, and prosperous ease, but did not aid the poor and needy. They were haughty and did an abomination before me, so I removed them when I saw it. Samaria has not committed half your sins. You've committed more abominations than they and have made your sisters appear righteous by all the abominations that you've committed. Bear your disgrace. You also, for you have intervened on behalf of your sisters because of your sins in which you acted more abominably than they. They are more in, the, in right than you. So be ashamed, you also, and bear your disgrace, for you have made your sisters appear righteous. Here God describes how since Israel came from pagan nations, she acted like her mother. But not only that, God compares Judah... To Samaria, the northern kingdom, which God, by the way, had already judged at this time. Remember, the Assyrians had already taken Samaria captive. They were already wiped out. And he also compared them to Sodom, which, as you know, God had already judged. But he said they were worse. I'm going to ask you a question as we close tonight. If God had said this about you, all these things that he said about Israel, what hopefully would be your response Fall on your face. Repentance. Repentance. And folks, I just want to challenge you. 
Read ahead the next verses at the end of the chapter for next week because I can't wait to show you that what we're going to see is the Bible says that God is going to give a new covenant to the people of Israel and the people of Judah. He's going to erase their sin and put his spirit with them. All what he's done for us in the church. It's further evidence, by the way, of the pre-tribulational rapture of the church because when he's taken us away, he will finish with Israel and it'll just be between him and them. And listen, the scripture is going to say, say, and I want you to read ahead so you'll see it, that at that time they will be ashamed when they understand that when he saves them in the end, it's purely because of his grace. It has nothing to do with how good they were. Remember, the people of Israel thought they were righteous because they kept the law and they did all these things. In the last days, when the tribulation period comes to an end and God does all he does and spares Israel from all the things that are happening to them, the ones that are left will say, the only reason we're still here is because of God's grace. I hope that's your attitude and that's mine. The only reason Jim Johnson's still here is because of his grace. I love you and we'll see you next week. Thanks for coming.